Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it is Saturday. Time to go into the vault for a classic episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is an old episode from an October, uh, maybe last October, right? Was yeah, October yeah. 25th of last year. Okay. Well, this was our episode about the Monster Slayer. Yeah, yeah. So this one's full of monsters and the heroes who slay them. And we kind of tease apart what this means, what we can take home from this. Like what are the – ultimately, like what are some of the religious – uh, you know, aspects of even the modern slasher story. I remember feeling very, uh, very fondly about this one when we first did it. So we hope you enjoy this classic episode of Halloween, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I want to tell you a story about a monster slayer. Robert, are you game? I am game. Okay. So once upon a time in medieval Japan, there was a warrior named Minamoto no Raiko, who was a daring swordsman, and he was famous everywhere for his bravery and his resolve. And Raiko had in his service a companion named Watanabe no Tsuna who was also courageous, and he was a formidable fighter in his own right, and he wielded a bow and arrow and wore a suit of armor. And one day, Raiko and Tsuna were traveling on the road to Kitayama when they saw a skull floating in the sky, flying in and out of the clouds above. Now, Raiko and Tsuna were curious how such a thing could be, so they decided, let's follow the skull. And they followed the flying skull all the way to Kagaroka, where it led them to a crumbling old mansion from ancient times. The decaying manor was surrounded by wild, overgrown weeds and an old gate choked by vines. So Raiko ordered Tsuna to wait for him outside, and Raiko entered the mansion alone. As he approached the threshold, he started to become aware of a presence. There was an old woman lurking behind the door, and he called out, Who are you? She replied, I've been living here for a good long time. I am 290 years old and have served in their turn nine lords of this house. And then Raiko saw her. She was a horrible sight to behold. Before the warrior's eyes, the old woman grasped her own eyelids with a tool, and she flipped her eyelids back over the top of her head like a hat. Then she pushed her mouth open with a large hairpin, and her lips became gigantic, and she took her lips and she tied them around her own neck, and her breasts began to sag down into her lap like rags. The old woman began to speak again. She said, Spring comes and autumn goes, but my sad thoughts remain the same. Years begin and end, but my misery is eternal. This place is a demon's den. No human dares pass through our gates. My sorrowful youth has gone, but my old self sadly remains. I lament that bush warblers depart and swallows on the beam fly off. In her sorrow, the wretched old woman begged Raiko to kill her with his sword and put her out of her misery. Raiko could see that the old woman was out of her mind, so he left her alone, and he instead decided to go into the house to see what had happened and solve the mystery of the flying skull and what was afflicting this woman and making her think she lived in a demon's den. So he went inside the house, and outside the sky grew dark and fierce and winds began to blow, but Tsuna waited loyally for his master. And inside the house, Raiko began to hear the sounds of footsteps echoing like the beat of a hand drum. 
Then he saw a coterie of spirits and goblins coming into the room with him. But the creatures didn't attack. Instead, they only danced around and then laughed at his fear before passing out through another door. In their place, there came into the room a tiny woman, no more than three feet tall, but with a gigantic face more than two-thirds of her whole height. And she had thick, heavy eyebrows, and when she opened her mouth, Raiko could see that her front teeth were black. She wore a purple hat and a red hakama with nothing underneath. Her arms were so thin they were like strings, and her skin was as pale as snowfall. Then that woman disappeared, and Raiko realized dawn was nearing. Almost as soon as the strange woman had left, another woman came into the room. This time, the woman was graceful and calm and so beautiful that Raiko could barely believe his eyes. He thought that this woman must be the true mistress of the old house, finally coming out to welcome him. And her eyes shone as bright as the reflection of a bonfire in black lacquer. But when Raiko was distracted by the woman's beauty, she got the better of him. She lifted up the hem of her hakama, and from underneath it she heaved at the swordsman some kind of material, what looked like balls of white cloud, and the balls of white cloud blinded him. They got in his eyes. And in a rage, Raiko drew his sword and he slashed at the woman, but she evaporated into thin air. He slashed so mightily that his sword passed through the floorboards and cut a foundation stone, and the tip of the blade broke off. Where the woman had been, there was now nothing but a pool of white blood on the floor, with a trail of more white blood leading off somewhere else. Raiko and Suna joined together again, and they followed the trail of white blood out of the house and up into the mountains, and finally to the mouth of a dark cave, out of which white blood was flowing like a river. At Suna's suggestion, the two of them made an effigy of rattan and vines in the shape of a man, and they carried it before them as they entered the cave. Inside the cave, they found a gigantic monster in the form of a mountain spider, but nearly 200 feet tall, and it wore a brocade on its head. Its eyes were as bright as the sun and the moon. The giant monster bellowed, "'What has happened to my body? It is so painful!' Then the monster hurled something at them in the dark, and the projectile hit the effigy that they carried in front of them and knocked it down. Raiko and Suna examined the object that the monster had shot at them, and they discovered that it was the broken tip of Raiko's sword. Together, they took hold of the creature, and they began to drag it out of the cave. And the monster put up a good fight, and it was a terrible monster indeed, strong enough to move boulders with its legs. So Raiko said a prayer to the sun goddess, Amaterasu, and uh, asked her for aid with the fight. Raiko and Suna pulled and pulled, and eventually the monster collapsed and fell belly up on the earth. Without hesitation, Raiko drew his sword and chopped off the monster's head. Tsuna ran to slash open the monster's belly, but found when he got there that it had already been opened by a deep gash. This was the wound Raiko had given it inside the house when it was in the form of the woman, and this proved that the giant spider truly was the beautiful woman that he had seen. From the gash in the giant spider's belly, 1,990 heads tumbled out onto the ground. The warriors cut open another part of the spider's body, and many smaller spider monsters swarmed out, each about the size of a seven- or eight-year-old child. When the warriors looked further in the stomach of the spider beast, they found twenty human skulls. Knowing what had to be done, Raiko and Suna dug a grave in the ground and buried the twenty skulls, and then burned the giant spider's den. 
When the emperor heard what Raiko and Suna had done in eliminating this heinous monster that had been plaguing the country, he gave them promotions and appointed them governors of their own provinces. And this is the story of Minamoto no Raiko and the giant spider. That is a fabulous story. I love it. Uh, just the, like the, the, the layers of the adventure and then just the, the revelations about the horrific monstrosity that they're faced with. I like how it's weird and rambling. Like it takes a long time to get to the final form of the monster. You mm-hmm. don't really know where it's going to go. It takes you to a haunted house first. Uh, something about that feels both unusual and intuitive. Um, so the, they start off seeing the skull and I have to assume that I guess the skull was some form of the monster. I don't know. Uh, but but also I like how in a lot of the monster slayer stories you come across, there is a more specific reason that the that the hero must undergo the quest to slay the monster. They, they have to like rescue a princess or something here. Right. This time they're just detectives investigating something weird that they saw <laughs> and it eventually leads them into the monster's cave to kill it, which ultimately – ultimately kind of makes you feel bad for the monster. Like it didn't even kidnap anybody they knew. They just like made their way to it. Yeah, it, was, it seems to be entirely recreational on their part. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I guess it kind of makes them like a some kind of roving police force almost in a way. Right. Yeah. Uh, or maybe they just needed the experience points. I mean, that's, that happens too. <laughs> that's true. Uh, so this giant spider story comes from an early 14th century Japanese picture scroll called the Tsushigumo Soshi. And uh, the version of the story that I read is as translated by the scholar Dr. Noriko T. Ryder, who we've referenced on the show before, I think in our episode about uh, cuteness and monstrosity. Oh, well, that would make sense. Uh, yeah. So the, so my version of the story I just told was based on her translation of this 14th century scroll. And uh, this is not the only legend about giant spiders in early modern Japan. Japan. The Sushigumo or Earth Spider was a common monster found in no plays and in uh, supernatural narratives uh, in the following centuries. But there are also other spider monsters like the Ushioni, which was sometimes described as like a giant spider with the head of a bull and it attacks fishermen at the water's edge. Oh. And then there's also the Jorogumo, which is the literally the prostitute spider. And it's another sort of ghost-like creature that appears in the literature of the Edo period, shape-shifting like the Sushigumo uh, between the forms of a beautiful woman and a voracious arachnid luring men to their deaths. Ah, so a, a classic trope of, of monsters appearing as, uh, as desirable humans or even non-human entities. Of course. And you see that too in, in the Sushigumo uh, in the story where the, the spider monster appears as this beautiful woman in the house and mm-hmm. distracts the swordsman with her beauty uh, just long enough to throw clouds of white matter in his eyes. Who knows what that's supposed to be? I don't know. If I guess it's the silk, right? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's supposed to be – I mean it's it's described as literally like clouds, so it's hard to mm-hmm. know exactly what it's referring to. It seems to be some kind of magical substance. All right. Uh, but yeah, so – we're doing something a little bit different today than we usually do in our October episodes where we love to focus on monsters. Today we wanted to take a look at the immortal enemy of our beloved monsters, the monster slayer. Yeah, it's it's often an essential part of the story. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, the thing – sometimes they define, like, define each other, right? Sometimes the monster is really the thing that defines the hero. Other times there's not a lot to say about the monster itself except that a certain hero of note uh, gave it a good slaying at some point. 
Yeah, and it's almost as deep and as old as the monster mythology itself, right? The oldest monster stories you can find when you go back in time uh, very often are monster slayer stories. There's a monster and there's a hero who must venture out often alone or with a faithful companion uh, to face the monster and destroy it. And the monster slayer archetype is actually classed as a particular type of like, you know, myth archetype, the the, the princess and the dragon type mm-hmm. story, which appears all over the world in different cultures uh, and, and you know in a, that's the very broad take you know that there's like a princess who's uh, being held captive or being threatened by some kind of monster and a hero must venture out with courage and face the monster. Though, of course, clearly not all the monsters in these types of stories are dragons. And then there's just the bigger myth architecture of whether or not there's a princess, there's very often a slayer who must face down the beast. Right. And and we're going to we're going to explore some different versions of this where the beast has you know varying degrees of symbolic uh, uh power, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and other times l- less so. Uh, <laughs> again, it, it often comes down to like why is why why is this hero killing this monster? That's uh-huh. often the question. Like what is gained by this story? Uh, and in doing that, you have to look at what the monster represents, what the hero represents, and then there are certain complexities that seem to come along just as storytelling evolves. Yeah. Uh, so another one I wanted to focus on to go e- even much deeper into history is the story of Marduk, the monster slayer. Uh-huh. Now Marduk, of course, is an uh, ancient Near Eastern god, uh, and I want to I want to focus on the story of Marduk, the monster slayer, as told from the Enuma Elish, the ancient Babylonian epic of creation, which of course is a great story we've explored on the podcast before, and I'm excited to explore it again. So the general story, Robert, you remember the outlines. You've got the primordial creators in the Babylonian epic, right? Mm-hmm. You've got Tiamat and Apsu, which represent salt water and fresh water, respectively. They're these gods and also kind of monster creatures. They're sort of dragon gods that are also salt water and fresh water. And they they embody a lot of natural might. Yes. A lot of also potentially chaotic might, right? Yeah, yeah. They they represent the the sort of chaos before the creation of the order of the world today. Mm-hmm. And what they do is uh, the sweet water and the salt water, together they create a race of gods, but end up finding those gods they've created unpleasant and loud. <laughs> and eventually um, the gods turn on their creators and they slay Apsu, the, the sort of uh, freshwater deity, and Tiamat, the saltwater deity, she is enraged and she tries to make revenge on the gods for slaying Apsu, attacking them in the form of a giant sea monster, a saltwater dragon and making a team of evil monsters to do wickedness on her behalf. And the gods, of course, because of her power, they're too afraid to go out and fight Tiamat themselves. But eventually they convince the storm god Marduk to go out himself and fight her on their behalf. So in exchange for risking his life in this fight, Marduk's – what's in it for Marduk, right? Uh, Marduk demands that the gods make him their king. So he, that that's the deal, right? I'll go out and slay the monster if you guys make me the boss. Which sounds like a good deal. You, you need a king. You want one that's going to actually slay your monsters. Right. So Marduk is armed with special weapons imbued with some kind of storm power, a bow and arrow, a mace, a net. And then there are these uh, powers of the winds that he commands, including the winds of the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, but also these other kinds of wind magic. Like there's one wind weapon he has just called 
called the evil wind. And I guess we're supposed to imagine some sort of like cosmic fart here. Um, <laughs> the, the fart jokes do kind of uh, uh, present themselves at this point. Uh, so from here, I think I, I will just read some lines from the enemy alias as the as translated by E.A. Spicer. Robert, would you like to read with me? Of course. Then the Lord raised up the flood storm, his mighty weapon. He mounted the storm chariot, irresistible and terrifying. He harnessed and yoked it to a team of four, the killer, the relentless, the trampler, the swift. Sharp were their poison-bearing teeth. They were versed in ravage, skilled in destruction. On his right, he posted the smiter, fearsome in battle. On the left, the combat, which repels all the zealous. His cloak was an armor of terror. His head was turbaned with his fearsome halo. The Lord went forth and followed his course. He set his face toward the raging Tiamat. He held a spell between his lips. A plant to put out poison was grasped in his hand. Uh, and then we'll skip a bit. Marduk approaches uh, and Tiamat's consort Kingu, this monster Kingu, and her allied gods and monsters become fearful. And then Tiamat taunts Marduk. And then Marduk gives a speech rebuking Tiamat and challenging her to single combat. And then we'll pick up with the lines again. When Tiamat heard this, she was like one possessed. She took leave of her senses. In fury, Tiamat cried aloud. To the roots of her legs shook both together. She recites a charm, keeps casting her spell, while the gods of battle sharpen their weapons. Tiamat and Marduk, wisest of gods, then joined battle. They strove in single combat, locked in conflict. The Lord spread out his net to enfold her. He let loose in her face the evil wind, which followed behind. When Tiamat opened her mouth to consume him, he drove in the evil wind, and she could not close her lips. As the fierce winds encumbered her belly, her body was distended and her mouth was wide open. He released an arrow. It tore her belly. It cut through her insides, splitting her heart. Having subdued her, he blotted out her life. He threw down her carcass and stood upon it. Oh, well, you got to stand on it. That's that's just uh, that's absolutely necessary. Well, the, uh, we've hit on this before. Like the uh, you see that trope in both the Western and Eastern art with yes. a demon or devil or monster trampled beneath the feet or sat upon as if it were a throne. You know, it's still a thing when you uh, see. I, I mean, I almost hate to bring this up because it makes me mad whenever I see it. But like uh, those like safari hunting pictures where people oh, yeah. like shoot a lion or something like that, and then they're like standing there with their foot on it. Yes, I, I am not crazy about that either. But they put their foot on it. Yeah. It's still a thing. It's like you are now Earth. It's it's like it's instinctive almost. Mm -hmm. I put my foot on this thing to show I have beaten it. And then, of course, the next thing in this story, because it becomes, of course, the epic of creation, is that Marduk makes the heavens and the earth out of Tiamat's dead body. Ah, this is another uh, thing we see uh, time and time again in different uh, myths, the idea of some primordial being being overcome and then their body being repurposed in creation. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting repeating theme. And uh, I don't know. I wonder what that says. Like, why do we have the the inherent suspicion that the ground on which we walk was once a living being. We should come back and do an, a whole episode on dead gods at some point. Oh, absolutely. Now, here's another thing I was thinking about, which is that in most of these pre-modern stories, 
the monster slayer is always a dude. It's always male. Not always. I want to get to a counterexample that mm-hmm. I was able to find. And it's also not uncommon for the monster that is getting slain to be female. Think about the Sushigumo, the, the woman in the house and slayed by the swordsman. Tiamat, the female monster slayed by Marduk. Yeah, Perseus uh, uh, and uh, the Medusa. Yeah, I mean, we can we can discuss more about what is meant by that in a bit. Uh, but I was on the hunt for some good pre-modern ancient female monsters. Monster Slayers, and I think I found at least one good example that that I turned up. Sort of a pre-Buffy Buffy, if you will. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's one of the many great things about Buffy, of course. Yeah, she's she's one of the greatest uh, vampire slayers, monster slayers of all time, but and she is a she is a, a female, which you, as you pointed out, you don't see a lot of in the, the ancient myth cycles. It's a nice change up on the gender dynamics yeah. of that. Yeah. Uh, but so another ancient Mesopotamian monster slayer would be Inanna. The glorious Inanna, crusher of heads. Inanna was a Sumerian goddess, also known as the Akkadian Ishtar, a goddess of many things. We've mentioned her on the podcast before, but, you know, goddess of the storehouse and the products of agriculture, but also it seems of fertility, sex, war, and slaughter. And Inanna is maybe my favorite ancient god or goddess due to those awesome hymns in her praise written by the priestess in Heduana, perhaps the earliest known piece of writing with a named author. Uh, in Heduana was a 23rd century BCE Mesopotamian high priestess and poet, the daughter of the Akkadian king Sargon the Great. And so she wrote these hymns to Inanna that are just spectacular to read. Um, but okay, what kind of monster slaying does Inanna do? Well, the story here is more obscure, more complex, but it's also interesting. It, it comes down to this Sumerian concept called Kur. And my source here is a couple of pieces by the 20th century ancient Near East scholar Samuel N. Kramer. So everything I'm saying here comes from Kramer. Kramer writes that Kur can be a really confusing word in ancient Sumerian literature because of its many different meanings. First of all, it seems to have a primary literal meaning of mountain, right? So you got Kur, the mountain. It's also used to mean foreign land, presumably because the peoples of the mountains bordering Sumer were a constant threat. But then Kur also appears to just mean land in general, like territory. Hmm. Uh, But also it has cosmic and religious connotations. So the word Kur is also used to signify the great below or the netherworld, quote, the empty space between the earth's crust and the primeval sea. And Kramer writes, quote, Moreover, it is not improbable that the monstrous creature that lived at the bottom of the great below, immediately over the primeval waters, is also called Kur. If so, this monster Kur would correspond to a certain extent to the Babylonian Tiamat. So this is another version of the Tiamat sea monster legend. And Kramer writes about kind of in the tradition of Marduk that there are multiple ancient stories and fragments of stories we have in which monster slayers attack the monster Kur. In one, the hero is the god Enki. In another one, it's Ninurta. But in a third, it appears to be Inanna. And so there's this passage where Inanna threatens the Kur uh, who who does not recognize her might. And Inanna says, the long spear I shall hurl upon it, the throwing stick, the weapon I shall direct against it. At its neighboring forests I shall strike up fire. 
at its, and then there's an elision. Uh, I shall set up the bronze axe. All its waters like Jibil, the fire god, the purifier I shall dry up. Like the mountain Arata, which no hand can reach, I shall, and then there's another elision. Like a city cursed by Anu, it will not be restored. Like a city on which Enlil frowns, it shall not rise up. And then the god Anu warns her how terrible the Kur monster is. Quote, Against the standing place of the gods, it has directed its terror. In the sitting place of the Anunnaki, it has led forth fearfulness. Its fearful terror it has hurled upon Sumer. Its fearful glory it has directed against all the lands. But, of course, mighty Inanna is not discouraged, and she, quote, opens the house of battle against the Kur and slays the monster and stands upon it and speaks a hymn to her own magnificence. These ancient goddesses were serious business. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Uh, and I, she stands on it, too. She's still doing <laughs> – putting her foot on it. It's got, that's got to happen. Um, and so th- I think the issue that Kramer highlights with the different meanings of the word Kur here is very illuminating. According to Kramer, again, it literally means mountain, also means enemy territory, also just means land or territory in general, also means the netherworld or the underworld, also the name of the monster that inhabits the netherworld and, and brings destruction against Sumer. So when you hear the story of Inanna slaying the Kur – if you're hearing it in the original language, you would be directly receiving all of these connotations. She conquers the mountain. She conquers the enemy lands. She conquers the land itself. She conquers the realm of the dead and maybe death. Um, it's interesting the way that you know we go later into monster slaying legends looking for the allegories and saying like you know what does what does this monster represent? It usually does seem to represent something mm-hmm. more than just a beast, either intentionally or accidentally. Yeah. Yeah, but but here it's like you've got all these connotations of the same word, meaning that it's almost just completely baked into the story at the face value level. That is fascinating. It's like the idea of the monster has yet to like congeal. You know, it's still yeah. more free flowing. Uh, well, the monster, I mean, you usually think of ancient stories as being more concrete and modern storytelling as being more abstract. But I, I wonder, I don't know if that's always the case. Yeah, this really flies in the face of, of those of some of the ideas we've discussed where like, oh, well, the monster is inspired by a fossil, mm-hmm. you know, or – uh, or something to that effect. Like, like this is more the uh, it's ideas uh, that are um, you know congealing into a symbolic form. Yeah, I, I would say this might be inspired less by a fossil and more by a family of concepts, yeah. all of which cause uh, discomfort and fear. And the fear is key. Fear will definitely come into play later in this episode. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we will explore more monsters and monster slayers. All right, we're back. So another famous monster and slayer combo that uh, – this is a combo that we could easily do a whole podcast on. You could do multiple podcasts on because a lot of people have written about this duo. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about Beowulf and Grendel. The great romance of uh, Anglo-Saxon literature. Yes. Uh, I don't probably don't have to remind everyone about this too much. It's a, you know, a violent tale in which a, a brutish automaton uh, of a human disrupts an ancient – and terminally endangered creature in the process of its predation. <laughs> predation, I should remind everyone, that targets only the loudest, fittest, and warlike uh, human males for the most part. Uh, the brute ends up tearing the arm off of the creature and then uh, follows it uh, home as it uh, retreats to its lair and then dies. Uh, 
and uh, our hero follows the blood, follows the you know the howls of pain, dives down to the deep layer, and there kills the creature's mother as well. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, I, I'm being a little cheeky in my description because it is no, great. you're just accurately describing the story. Beowulf <laughs> is a jerk. He's well, he is. He's kind of the I'm kind of you know partial, I guess, to John Gardner's Grindel, who yeah. kind of plays up these themes a lot by uh, humanizing the monster while at the same time retaining its monstrous qualities but portraying beowulf as just this this holy wrath of a character yeah i uh i I guess it's a it's a modern thing for us to sympathize more with the monster why why is it like that now why do we sympathize with the monster more these days i'm not sure i mean well part of it is that yeah tales like this kind of speak to all of us and continue to resonate today but it's it's still a tale that was Speaking to a probably more specific audience mm-hmm. as opposed to you know humanity in general. Maybe the reason that we're more inclined to sympathize with Grendel and sympathize with monsters these days is that we more people now are sort of conditioned to the idea that history as written might not always be uh, fair. Mm-hmm. You know that it maybe is written to benefit the people who are writing it and make them look good. And thus, you always kind of wonder when you get a heroic tale of a slaying, is it actually a tale of an unfair and undeserved slaughter? Hmm. Yeah, or sometimes maybe a monster just doesn't need slaying anymore. Um, I, I was uh, looking around, and again, there is a tremendous amount of, of literature <laughs> about Grendel uh-huh. uh, and Beowulf. Uh, uh, tons of uh, people have written about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote about uh, Beowulf and Grendel. I was looking at one particular author, though, an uh, English professor and also medieval dragon expert, uh, Joyce Talley, uh, Lion Arons, I believe. Uh, is her last name. And she points out uh, that there's a lot to be said in interpreting Grindel and his mother. Uh, and some of the earlier interpretations were certainly more uh, seeing them as personifications of natural threats. Yeah. Very much in keeping with what we discussed uh, uh, in the Marduk story already. They're what's outside the firelight. They are the wilderness embodied. Yeah, they're the wilderness. They're the dark. Uh, they are perhaps more specifically the North Sea, the bog, the marsh, long winter nights. I mean, ultimately a cousin of Jenny Greenteeth in many respects, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the monster dies and spring emerges again, while Beowulf's eventual death battling a dragon is a tale of autumn's descent. Hmm. A lot of people don't, uh, uh, I mean, I guess this is referenced in uh, the most recent film adaptation, but a lot of people forget about the dragon. Yeah, this is the second half of the story, but Be- Beowulf grows old, and in the second half of the story, he, a young a young Wiglaf has to uh, take up the mantle of the monster slayer because Beowulf can't hack it anymore. Yeah. Literally can't hack into those monster <laughs> hides like you used to. Can't tear those arms off like you used to. Um, you know, uh, I can't help but be reminded and th- thinking about like these older monster stories, monster and slayer tales, and then trying to think about their their analogs in, uh, in, in modern uh, popular uh, culture. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think of uh, a little story in which a band of professional war makers in Central America are targeted by an alien hunter. <laughs> <laughs> that, it, that only preys on the fittest and warlike uh, of its target species. Uh-huh. But only through uh, through trickery does the human, a man named Dutch, prevail. Oh, uh, he's Dutch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, no, his name is Dutch, yeah. I don't know. Is he supposed to be Dutch? I thought maybe he was I don't, just... I don't know, but that sort of solidifies the, uh, the Beowulf connection. Oh, well... Hmm, interesting. But anyway, Dutch uh, ends up probably dying from radiation uh, exposure, uh, thanks since the monster self-detonate. But I am, of course, talking about the film Predator. 
Man, you have taken me to a sacred and surprising place today. I never expected to connect Predator and Beowulf, but but I see it. I mean, there. I think there are certain connections you can make. But uh, on, at the same time, the contrast is very interesting mm-hmm. because uh, Grindel is fearsome but is ultimately easily overcome by the hero. Right. Predator is fearsome and basically wins. I mean, yeah. he slays everybody except Dutch, and Dutch is really only able to barely achieve victory in the end. He tricks him. Yeah. It's trickery. Yeah. Trickery, yeah. Which is, a, which is also something you see a, a lot of times. And generally speaking, we're talking about like the masculinity of the hero. Mm-hmm. The, it, it's very hard to find examples, especially in the older stories, where the hero is something other than, a, than first of all, a male, but also the warrior, the soldier, you know. Yeah. And perhaps the soldier ends up using trickery uh, or enchanted items. Uh, and both of those may be actually given to him by the gods or in some cases a goddess. But in any effect, I feel like they they tend to have tended to have an easier time of it. Whereas nowadays, really, I'm gonna I'm personally gonna be disappointed if the hero uh, really takes out the monster too soon. I mean, you want to see the struggle, right? Well, right. I mean, maybe now people are more likely to want to see different values. Like uh, maybe now you put more emphasis on say the the courage and cleverness of a hero than on just like their absolutely unbeatable strength. Mm-hmm. Or certainly maybe just the, the the things that the monsters represent for us now are less severe. Like maybe it's like if Grindel is representing uh, just the, the harsh realities beyond the campfire, maybe you, you want to hear, you need a hero that just tears into it like a nightmare. Yeah. You know, you don't want to, you don't want a weak hero that's going to, you know, take a beating for uh, 45 minutes before building a, a, a proper bow and arrow out of twigs. Well, I say I, I certainly appreciate vulnerable heroes. I mean, I find stories where the hero is too powerful and too good and too strong, very boring. Mm-hmm. And then you run the risk of the monster being more relatable. Yeah. Well, you y'all out there know our monster sympathies, so we can't pretend to hide that. So, of course, in talking about slayers, we can't help but talk about dragon slayers. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's one particular dragon slayer that, that's probably, if not the, then definitely one of the most famous dragon slayers in Western traditions. Of course, and this is Saint George. Yes, the the, the subject of many uh, a painting and uh, engraving. <laughs> Uh, Often failing to make the dragon fearsome. Yeah, the dragon, the kill, the slaying of the dragon, I I find in some of these uh, paintings, it often feels more like the execution of a pet salamander or something, you know? <laughs> like it's, there's a dog-like quality to this yes. small creature that is crushed under the heel of a of a giant horse and a top, and there's a mounted knight atop just, you know, Skewering it with a, a sword or a spear. Yeah, there's one image I attached here where St. George is attacking. It is snarling, but it does look like a dog with wings. <laughs> if you're not familiar, maybe I should go ahead and tell the story of St. George. You ready for that, Robert? Let's do it. Okay, so th- this comes – now, here's one thing actually about the, the legend of St. George as a Christian saint long predates uh, any written version of this story of the dragon slaying we have. Uh, the As far as I know, the earliest written version of the dragon slaying comes from the Golden Legend or Lives of the Saints compiled by Jacobus de Voragine, Archbishop of Genoa in uh, 1275 and the first edition in English was published in 14. 
1570, translated by William Caxton. But here's the story. Okay, so you got St. George, and St. George is a wandering knight. He's a, he's a soldier, and he's a knight. He's born in Cappadocia, which is a region of Turkey, which, Robert, have you ever seen the, uh, the fairy chimneys of Cappadocia? I believe so, yes. They're beautiful looking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it look, you just look up the landscape of this place and you can imagine it's the kind of place a, a magical hero would come from. <laughs> so he comes from Cappadocia and uh, as a traveling knight, one day he wandered into the vicinity of a city called Silene, which was in the province of Libya. Now, by the city of Silene was a great pond where there was a dragon that, quote, envenomed all the country and it would attack the city mercilessly, breathing venom that sickened and killed the people. And the citizens of Silene had tried to slay the dragon, but so terrible was the beast and so poisonous was its breath that the fighters all ran away before they could fight it. So all that was left to do was to try to bribe the dragon to leave them alone. At first, they would feed it two sheep every day, but eventually this failed. So they started to feed the dragon a man and a sheep each day. And eventually they decided that they had to offer their children one at a time to keep the dragon at bay. So the king made an ordinance that each day there would be a lottery of the children in the town and whichever child the lot fell to, whether rich or poor, would be offered up to the dragon. But then one day, the lot fell to the princess, to the king's own daughter. And he begged the people, saying, quote, For the love of the gods, take gold and silver and all that I have, but let me have my daughter. And the people answered, How, sir, ye have made and ordained the law, and our children be now dead, and ye would do the contrary? Your daughter shall be given, or else we shall burn you and your house." I said it's a reasonable response to this policy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he can, he can set the policy, but then doesn't want it to apply to him. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Th- so then the, the king was very sad. He wept and begged for eight days respite. The people granted that to him. But in those eight days, the dragon envenomed the city terribly. Uh, so when the time was up, the king dressed his daughter up as a bride and he kissed her and he gave her a benediction and then led her out to the dragon's lair at the pond. So the princess is alone at the pond, dressed in a bridal gown, waiting to be eaten by the dragon. But then St. George happens to pass by. And he asks her what she's doing out there by herself in the wilderness. And she says, go ye your way, fair young man, that ye perish not also. And he replies by asking why she's crying. (laughs) And eventually she tells him the truth that she'd been delivered as a tribute to the dragon. Uh, And then to quote from this version of the Golden Lives, uh, then said St. George, fair daughter, doubt ye no thing hereof, for I shall help thee in the name of Jesu Christ. She said, for God's sake, good night, go your way and abide not with me, for ye may not deliver me. So she's doubting his power, but he's got to display it because he's already sworn in the name of Jesu Christ that he can do it. So as they're speaking, the dragon suddenly appears and it begins to charge at them. And then so St. George draws his sword and he makes the sign of the cross. And then he, quote, rode heartily against the dragon which came toward him and smote him with his spear and hurt him sore and threw him to the ground. So the dragon is mortally injured. And then George asks the princess to remove her girdle and tie it around the neck of the dragon. 
Quote, when she had done so, the dragon followed her as it had been a meek beast and debonair. <laughs> then she led him into the city, and the people fled by mountains and valleys and said, Alas, alas, we shall all be dead. Then St. George said to them, Nay, ye doubt no thing without more. Believe ye in God, Jesu Christ, and do ye to be baptized, and I shall slay the dragon. So the king then and all his people got baptized as Christians, and, quote, St. George slew the dragon and smote off his head and commanded that he should be thrown in the fields, and they took four carts with oxen that drew him out of the city. And as a result of this, there's a whole bunch of people get baptized, become Christians, and then there's a bunch of, like, healings of the sick and stuff. And then, of course, the legend goes on and tells about the martyrdom of St. George after that. But that's the story of St. George, the princess, and the dragon. It's pretty good. I enjoyed the build-up more than the payoff, I think. You know, yeah. like the, uh, the, the lottery system was pretty engaging. Well, there's no—I mean, St. George doesn't have a trick up his sleeve except prayer, that well, yeah. seems to be the thing. He's just like, well, he prays and Jesu Christ comes through and slays the dragon. He doesn't have a trick, you know, mm -hmm. or maybe prayer is like a trick here. I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess prayer is the trick. I mean, again, in a lot of these stories, you look in some of the Greek myths, to defeat the monster, one must use wisdom or weapons that are a gift of the gods. Yeah. So um, what is the difference, I guess, ultimately between that and prayer? Right. Well, I guess it would just make a better story, like if Jesu Christ came down and gave him a magical weapon or I something. Agree. Yeah, give him a you know the the, the armor of Christ or something, or yeah. you know some sort of fancy sword, and then we can get the idea. It's like, oh yeah, if you're on God's side, you can slay dragons. I get the same message, but it's a little more entertaining, at least you know for me. Right. But of course, as we mentioned earlier, this is sort of part of a genre of stories that proliferate around the world. There are all these dragon slaying stories, especially they're, of course, medieval dragon slaying stories. Yeah. And I mentioned uh, Joyce Talley uh, Lanarans earlier. I mentioned that uh, she was uh, an expert on medieval dragon slayings and medieval dragons. Uh, I was reading uh, on, uh, something she wrote uh, titled The Sign of a Hero, Theodoric Saga of Burn." Uh, and uh, in this, she points out that a number of interesting things about uh, some of the tales we've discussed, though more specifically uh, Theodoric, Theodoric the Great, mm -hmm. uh, Beowulf, and Siegfried. So she points out that in German literature especially, dragon slaying becomes something of a defining characteristic of any hero. <laughs> what? So like you're like, I'm a hero. It's like, I don't know. Did you slay a dragon? Well, I <laughs> Exactly. I mean, that's the that's the problem because then how do you draw the line between standard heroes and truly mighty heroes if they're all monster slayings? Mm -hmm. And in doing so, also the, the act of slaying a dragon ends up serving perhaps less of a symbolic uh, 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 purpose, right? I mean, you're not defeating chaos or the devil or the the you know the powers of the dark, um, or it's not serving as a you know a mark of passage into adulthood. It's just like a necessary. Um, upgrade in the arms race of storytelling. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the particular Old Norse saga that she's dealing with here in this paper, she points out uh, that, it, that it tackles the, the problems of including both uh, Theodoric the Great and Siegfried in the same story. So what the, what the story does is it makes Siegfried into Theodoric's vassal. Mm -hmm. It makes him kind of the sidekick, right? And kind of Wiglaf? Kind of a little kinda, bit? Kind of, yeah. Uh, but also gives Theodoric two dragons and three baby dragons to kill. 
So in doing this, you know, killing a dragon becomes less an impressive act in and of itself. A real hero has to kill like upwards of five dragons. This is how we get Blade. Where you, <laughs> you've got monster monster slayers that are like the vampire slayers. They got to kill tons of vampires. Well, yeah, I think also you're touching on something. You get a like maybe you get specific types of monster slayers and specific yeah. types of, of monsters. Like, oh, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. Like, you know, I guess in the Marvel Universe, I imagine Captain America could kill a vampire. Uh-huh. But if you're dealing with multiple vampires, it's got to be Blade every time, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. He's uh, he's specialized labor. He, he knows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's got all the, the tricks and the tools and the knowledge. So in this paper, she also points out there's a distinction in the types of dragons dealt with. Some natural and others supernatural. Some flightless worms and other winged uh, – some and others are winged beasts. Uh, demonic uh, connotations, for example, are reserved in this tale for Theodoric's dragon foes. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean that's when – in the original version of the King George story that I was – Reading up there, did we receive any indication that the dragon could even fly? I mean, it might have just been like a big poison crocodile for right. I mean, that make would would certainly uh, match up with these uh, depictions in which it is very much on the ground beneath the horse. Yeah. By the way, in that particular story, um, uh, these two heroes eventually duel, and of course, uh, Theodoric the Great wins. Wait, Theodoric kills Siegfried? Well, no, no, just defeats him. Oh, I didn't I say see. it was to the death. They're not monsters. Okay. <laughs> But uh, it's interesting that they're kind of dealing with some of the – probably some of the problems that that uh, the comic books have dealt with in modern times. Like what happens when you when you have two heroes in the same story? How do you, how do you balance their powers or, or how do you show clear um, – how do you have position one above the other in a way that doesn't diminish the other one too much? Well, you got to have uh, th- what, Captain America and Iron Man fight? Yeah. It's kind of the same deal, right? Yeah. Or is it Thor and Iron Man? I don't keep up with those. Um, I think main – I don't mean I guess they've all fought each other. You can't help but have heroes fight each other. But I I, I believe Captain America and Iron Man, they're the ones who, uh, who end up fighting each other in the movies. You know, another thing I was thinking about when you mentioned how Lion Arons highlighted that eventually they have to start killing more and more monsters to show how great they are because just killing one monster and yeah, it's not that impressive anymore. Mm-hmm. I obviously have to go to Hercules. I mean, oh, yeah. Hercules had a bunch of uh, – what What percent of his 12 labors were monster slayings? A lot of them, right? Well, we're about to go through them, so let's find out. Oh, OK. Uh, everyone can keep track at home and uh, and, and do, do the math. Please show your work. Uh, Hercules or uh, Heracles is, of course, one of the greatest monster slayers in Greek and Roman traditions. Now, granted, uh, he didn't take out Medusa. That was Perseus, uh, who, of course, used uh, goddess-given tactics and weapons to overcome the Gorgon. But he, he did a, a hell of a lot during the uh, the labors of Hercules. And there, there's, uh, I should point out, there's a wonderful video game-themed uh, short about this from uh, Ted Ed. If you uh, go to you know YouTube or the TED Ed website, you will find it. It's absolutely delightful. Yeah, it's like so. You say video game themed. It's like pixel art. It looks like a n- classic Nintendo game. Yeah, yeah, or some sort of sixteen bit thing. I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure exactly which bit it would be, but it looks like a fabulous game. I, I, it yeah. makes me want to play it. So basically, here's the rundown. Uh, you have Hercules. This. Uh, this, uh, you know, semi-divine hero, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I like to picture the classic uh, uh, cinema Hercules uh, with, the, with the big beard and the big muscles, you know. Uh-huh. He's very much in the, you know, the class of, of masculine warrior heroes. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so uh, he ends up going on these labors, and these labors are an act of atonement after the goddess Hera drives him mad, resulting in the murder of his own children. And these labors were assigned to him by his nemesis, Eurystheus. So uh, these are the labors. First labor, uh, he has to take out the, the Nemean lion, which is a monstrous lion. Yeah. Second labor is the Lernaean Hydra. And this is a classic monster that is sometimes described as a mere multi-headed snake monster. But later it takes on uh, regenerative features as well. Uh, so, yeah, you cut off one head, two grow back in its place. Uh, Big Herc had to get help from his nephew on this one. Is that Aeolus? I believe so, yes. Uh, and the solution here is it's a fabulous work of team, uh, a bit of teamwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, Herc slices off the head and then uh, the nephew jumps in and burns the stump. Mm. Third labor, Serenian hind, not a monster really, but a very special deer. Uh, fourth labor is the Aramathian um, uh, boar, which is a monstrous boar, just another you know giant-sized animal for him to deal with. Okay. Uh, fifth labor, he uh, cleans out the Aegean stables, uh, so just lots of animal poop. Uh, not a monster, but a monstrous task. Exactly. Uh, sixth labor were the uh, Stymphalian birds. Uh, the, these were pretty monsters. These were the sacred metal war birds of Ares, bronze of beak and feather, and uh, they could launch their um, their uh, metal feathers like flying daggers. Whoa. Seventh labor was the uh, the Cretan bull. Which is, is there any connection with the Minotaur there? I I mean I would assume we're talking about Crete, right? Yeah, and it's a bull. Yeah, but it's just a monstrous bull. It's not a okay. Minotaur. Um, then the eighth labor was were the the mares of Diomedes, and these were flesh eating horses. So they're pretty monsters. Now, granted, they were they were trained to eat flesh. They were encouraged to eat flesh, uh-huh. and uh, and he's able to overcome this one and uh, essentially gets their their masters eaten instead. Ninth labor, the belt of Hippolyta, not uh, a monster. The, the Amazon queen, yeah. Right. Tenth labor, the cattle of Geryon, uh, and Geryon was a giant with three faces. Eleventh labor, the golden apples of uh, Hesperides. And then twelfth labor, uh, Cerebus, the three-headed hellhound. So here we have a, a, a good monster for him to, uh, to tackle and uh, literally tackle and wrestle and overcome. So these are all these are all fun little adventures, and uh, we would need a lot more time to really talk about all of them in depth and what they mean, et cetera. Um, you know, I mean, heck, we have a full episode on hydras in the vault. But one of the things that strikes me here is that, that Herc again is very much a, a male warrior hero, and he uses strength and cunning to overcome his enemies. But at the same time, Herc is a divine being. Yeah, he's a demigod, a hybrid born of uh, the god Zeus and a mortal mother. So he's touched by the otherworldly, and therefore the perfect slayer of otherworldly enemies. I mean, this highlights a couple different ways that monster slayers can be. One is the courageous type and the other is the fearless type, which is a very different thing, right? Right. Uh, I mean, does is there ever any indication that Hercules feels fear when he goes to fight uh, these monsters or does his godlike nature, the, the fact that he's half god, sort of make him able to face these with a sense of invulnerability? Yeah, I, I feel like it's it's a fearless uh, situation. Fear, yeah. fearless, and largely invulnerable because he is half god. Yeah, um, you know, I can't help but be reminded again of Blade, uh, specifically the Wesley Snipes Blade. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there another Blade? And there was like a TV Blade played by uh, what Sticky Fingers, I think, or Fingers. Uh, the, uh, the 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 rapper played him, uh, and I don't know. I never saw the show, but. Uh, 
as far as I'm concerned, Wesley Snipes is the only blade. Okay. Um, but uh, in that, he is half vampire. Uh, so he has, I think it's said that he has um, all of their strengths, but none of their weaknesses, right? So right. he's the, the per- daywalker, yeah. Yeah, well, who, who else but the daywalker? The daywalker is the perfect uh, slayer of all of these vampires. Now, Robert, I'm sure you would love to talk about some of the monster slayers of Chinese myth and legend. Oh, yeah, there, there are some good ones. Uh, one of them is actually a character we've talked about on the show before, uh, in our episode on the Great Flood, uh, because we talked about uh, the, the Chinese uh, mythic uh, hero, uh, Yu the Great, or Da Yu. Um, uh, he was also uh, you know, emperor and founded uh, uh, the Xia dynasty, which was uh, 2072, uh, 1600 BCE. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked about him on the show before about in, in regards to his uh, his his role in overcoming uh, the ravages of the Great Flood. Right. Uh, not by building a boat or anything like we see in uh, you know Mesopotamian and Old Testament traditions, but by sort of tackling it with irrigation and engineering. Yeah. Uh, but also through uh, like having uh, his father having pilfered the secrets from the gods. So there's this Promethean vibe to it as well. Yeah. But he was also uh, something of a monster slayer. Uh, he is said to have killed the nine-headed serpent, uh, Sheng Lu, uh, who was a minister of the defeated chaotic water deity, Gong Gong, uh, and, uh, who was defeated in a battle for divine supremacy against, the, um, against uh, Zhang Zhu, the grandson of the mythical Yellow Emperor. As described by uh, uh, the author Zhang and An in Handbook of Chinese Mythology, Zhang Lu, the great black serpent here, had nine human heads, and the nine heads ate food from the nine mountains. And everywhere it went, it left impassable marshes and hostile gullies in its path. Hmm. Now, do you think that the uh, the idea of like the nine heads with their their sort of snaking necks has anything to do with rivers there with river imagery? I assume, yeah. I didn't. I didn't. Um, uh, they didn't go into into any more uh, extended detail on the possible symbolism of the of the, of the nine heads, etc. But it does bring to mind this idea of like branching rivers, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I think everyone can see where we're going here. Like uh, you, the great. Uh, overcomes floods and the dangers of flood. And here we have the monster personification of, of floods and flood hazards. So you ends up slaying the monster, but the creature's blood is so poisonous that it poisons the spot where it dies so that uh, life can find no purchase there. And you wants to overcome this so, uh, so that crops can be grown there and, and dug. And so he digs out the poisoned earth, not once, not twice, but three times. And each time the blood sinks down even deeper. And eventually he just has to build a terrace from the excavated soil uh, and, uh, and atop this, uh, you know, it, it is, it's like a temple that's uh, uh, devoted to the great gods. Now, uh, Yang and An uh, mentioned that this story is not really told that much in modern China, but that some versions of it still survive, uh, such as one uh, from Sichuan province in which uh, uh, Zhang Zhu survives a battle with the fire god uh, Zhu Rong and continues to bring flooding and death to the earth, forcing the mother goddess Nua to slay it. Oh, okay. So here we get uh, a goddess getting involved in the slaying again. Um, Nua also more famously defeated the black dragon, also a, uh, a being of chaotic water and flood energy. 
I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention um, uh, the archer, uh, Hu Yi, uh, who killed uh, a number of different monsters and, of course, shot down the nine surplus sons that were roasting the earth. Uh, and in some tellings, he actually shot and killed nine great crows that carried these sons. Now, what's also interesting is that during this age of 10 suns, uh, not only is it just really hot and difficult to grow crops, it's also uh, said to be a time of cosmic imbalance. And during this time, a lot of unnatural monsters rise up. And so the emperor ends up tasking uh, uh, Yi the archer uh, with their destruction. Uh, and uh, so uh, just, a, just a few of the monsters that uh, he ends up killing include uh, – uh, there's a monster with a dragon's head and a leopard's body, a monster with teeth as sharp as chisels that are unbreakable. There is a nine-headed monster. There's a giant bird, a giant boar, a giant snake. Uh, so again, all manner of unnatural creatures who rose up during a time of cosmic imbalance. Yi also uh, punishes a couple of damaging elemental gods with a well-placed uh, arrow or two. For instance, he shot the damaging wind god He Bo in the eye, and he took out both knees of the damaging river god Fingbo, and in other versions, he kills Fingbo outright. So once again, we have uh, like river, water, elemental monsters that have to be dealt with by a hero. Yeah, and the idea of them coming out of a time of cosmic imbalance mm -hmm. um, seems to somehow echo, you know, the, the very ancient monster concepts of like the chaos monster, like, yeah. like Tiamat and Apsu. All right, well, on that note, let's take one more break. When we come back, let's talk about what the Slayer means to us. All right, we're back. Okay, so we've been looking at a lot of uh, great examples of monsters and their slayers, the monster slayer stories th from throughout human history. And now we wanted to take a look at what the, what, what the monster slayer means. Why do we keep telling stories like this? Why is this so common? And what purpose psychologically and culturally does it serve when we do? Uh, so one of the things I, I want to say at the outset just as a kind of disclaimer is that um, – I feel like when we try to explain what stories and myths mean from a kind of evolutionary psychology perspective, we always need to remember to understand the difference between like proving a theory with direct evidence and sort of simply telling a plausible story and arguing it to be consistent with what we know. No, I'm actually all for uh, having arguments over plausible stories and evo-psych and all that. But it's imperative for us to remember that that's what they are. I think sometimes people get carried away with this project and they jump from I've told a plausible story about why we have this cultural thing or this psychological thing to I have discovered the biological origin of this element of human psychology or culture. And we, I think we just always need to be careful not to do that. Sometimes you see people taking like uh, – almost Joseph Campbell-y kind of observations to the point of saying like this is just science and that's – you know you know what I mean. Right. That said, all these kind of like uh, Joseph Campbell-y sort of observations can be a lot of fun, right? And and he, of course, had lots to say and think about the role of monster slayers. Yeah. I mean uh, likewise um, uh, Julian Jaynes, The Bicameral Mind, yeah. which I'll actually touch on in a bit. Like if you, if you go entirely down the Jaynes well of interpreting everything, then yeah, it can be a lot of fun. But then you – have cut off all other perspectives on what the, the thing is. Well, I mean, so one thing that uh, somebody I think like Joseph Campbell would say is that the role of the 
monster slayer in fiction is about like facing the ego. It's like this ego struggle and that you've got to face yourself and overcome your fears and and change something about yourself, you know, th- mm-hmm. that that kind of thing. And so I I do agree at least that it's totally plausible that monster slayer stories are very prominent and very common because stories about facing dangers and facing fears are psychologically very salient to us. You know, we're constantly in our lives faced with situations where we don't want to do something, but in order to to get what we want, we have to do that thing we don't want to do. You know, you got to face your fears and overcome your discomfort to, I don't know, save the princess or to do whatever. And I think that's a totally plausible basis for for starting a conversation about what Monster Slayer myths mean. So another way to get deeper on this subject, I guess, would be to look a little bit more at what the monsters in these stories mean. And I, I want to posit a place for us to start there. I, I would posit that the monsters in these stories most often, I would say, uh, seem to come from a combination of two main psychological uh, components, biological threats and category confusions. Right. And, and we've, we've talked about category confusion uh, quite a bit on the show. Uh, the idea that it's uh, – well, go back to Hercules, right? Yeah. It's like a snake, but it has way too many heads. Or it's right. like a boar, but it's gigantic. What's going on? Right. And uh, there, there are reasons I think that would be significant. I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. Now, obviously, the fear of biological threats is pretty straightforward. There's a mm-hmm. natural fear – of predatory or venomous animals and of human rivals. And this doesn't need much explaining in the basic sense. Predators are dangerous and thus a deeply ingrained archetype from the natural world. But there there are also some relevant questions like, why are certain forms such as snakes, which we've seen all throughout these monsters, and spiders also, mm-hmm. why are those things readily seen as monstrous or incorporated in parts into chimerical monsters? Why so easily a spider monster or a serpentine monster? Uh, why not more often like a bear monster? You might have one of those every now and then. That's true because, of course, the argument with the, the snake or the, um, or the spider is that if it bites you, you could die. Uh, depending on the variety of snake or spider. If the bear bites you, there's also a very good chance you'll die. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this has actually long been a question. This, there's been this big question about whether these common fears, especially of things like spiders and snakes, are are learned or innate. And, Robert, I know you've looked at research like this, too. Obviously, some part of any widespread fear will be based on cultural conditioning. So mm-hmm. I think it's pretty inarguable that some part of this fear is learned, right? But could there also be a biological factor? Could there also be some inbuilt part of the brain that is prone to recognize the shapes of spiders and snakes and react fearfully without any prior knowledge or conditioning? And I'd say that the question still isn't totally settled, but there's been some interesting research suggesting uh, especially recently that, yes, recognition could be innate. Uh, one example is uh, – study from 2017 in Frontiers in Psychology called Itsy Bitsy Spider, Infants React with Increased Arousal (laughs) to Spider and Snakes, Spiders and Snakes. So, of course, what they did in the study here was they threw babies into cribs full of spiders and snakes. (laughs) Uh, They did not. And the study showed six-month-old infants images with similar shapes and colors. So visually, these images were very close to each other, but with different ontological content. Some of them were pictures of 
spiders versus flowers that looked very similar and others were pictures of snakes versus fish that looked very similar. And the researchers measured the baby's differential pupillary response to these images, the dilation of the pupils, and that's accepted as a pretty good indicator of activation of the uh, noradrenergenic system, which is a physiological fear response. You know, it, it commands your attention and mm-hmm. your body responds physiologically. Uh, and the authors write, quote, infants reacted with increased pupillary dilation indicating arousal to spiders and snakes compared with flowers and fish. Results support the notion of an evolved preparedness for developing fear of these ancestral threats. So if even six-month-old babies show a stress response to images of spiders and snakes, it would seem that those forms could in some way be hardwired into us. There's at least part of us that is naturally biologically afraid of those things and it's not just cultural conditioning. Uh, and another question there is why spiders and snakes, right? We brought this up a minute ago. There are much more dangerous animals. Uh, w- one possible answer offered in a CBC interview by study author uh, Stephanie Hull is, quote, What's really interesting about spiders and snakes is that they have been posing a threat to our ancestors for an immensely long time. Spiders and snakes developed venomous bites 40 to 60 million years ago. This is a really long, long time of coevolution, and we think that this enables primates, not only humans, but other primates as well, to develop mechanisms that enable us to detect these animals very quickly, to respond to them, to put our bodies into fight or flight mode. This This may really have posed an advantage. Nowadays, it doesn't make so much sense. So the idea there is that, well, maybe it's not that we naturally respond to spiders and snakes because they're the most dangerous animals, but because they're the dangerous forms we've been around the longest and have stayed looking the same the longest. Does that make sense? Yeah, the the basic formula, the basic basic, uh, uh, proposition of a snake or a spider has not changed in human history. Or even in primate history. True, yes. But I might just note, on the other hand, there's also some evidence pointing against the hard-coded phylogenetic threat hypothesis. For example, I found a study from 2009 in which adults recognized images of guns just as efficiently as they recognized images of snakes. Now, of course, guns aren't part of our biological neurohistory, so they couldn't, there couldn't be like a hardwired gun response in the brain. That has to be culturally learned. But then again, maybe, maybe it's just that our cognitively based or learned fears become every bit as efficient in the brain as the hardwired evolved ones that Hmm. could be. How about uh, Thulsa Doom's bow that shoots snakes from Conan the Barbarian? <laughs> that See, that is the ultimate uh, physiological threat <laughs> arousal trigger. I mean, I couldn't react with anything but worship there. You know, in that movie, we have another great example of monster slaying because one of Conan's early uh, 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 trials is the slaying of the, the giant snake that Thulsa Doom keeps as a pet in one of the temples. Yeah, what is he? Does he strangle it? Uh, he eventually chops its head off. But oh, okay. I, there's some wrestling there for sure. There's some there's some wrestling. But of course it's a snake. I mean, dragons are essentially snakes. Mm-hmm. We always have these snake forms reappearing as monsters over and over. It's got a snake for a head or the whole thing is a snake with wings or, you know. Right. Well, now in Western traditions, but in, as we've mentioned in Eastern traditions, there's I feel like there's enhanced uh, uh, there's an enhanced hybrid nature oh, to yeah. the dragons. Yeah, the the eastern dragon becomes, I, I would argue, an even more fascinating creature with more, uh, more valences. You know, more like it's more like the core maybe, and having uh, multiple significances at different levels. Yeah. 
But I would also think that you know the eastern dragon tends to be less of a monster. Per True, se. it's more of a. I mean, it's it's very uh, very often you know it's, it is definitely an elemental force. It's tied to floods and storms and waters in the ocean, mm-hmm. but it does have more of a a divine presence than you find in uh, in Western traditions. Yeah. Uh, so so anyway, back to the idea of the basis of these monster fears. So one, you've got these elements that are so often taken from what appear to be at least maybe hard-coded form threats, phylogenetic threats that are, you know, part of our evolutionary history and they at least at some level may be hard-coded in the brain. If not hard-coded in the brain, very well-coded into culture. Uh, And the other thing, of course, we feel we mentioned a minute ago is the discomfort with category confusion. So, Let's say we're defending ourselves from a natural threat, whether that's a venomous snake or a leopard or a wolf. One of our greatest defense mechanisms is not our muscles but our brains, right? Awareness and recognition, the ability to cognitively pick out signs of threats and avoid them. And then, of course, also if we must face a threat, like cleverness and strategic thinking to overcome the threat. But most of our defensive thinking is actually one form or another of category sorting, right? You see a shape and you immediately start to sort what kind of thing is that? Is that a harmless bunny or a venomous snake? And so perhaps one reason we fear monsters so much is that they not only represent aspects of real biological threats and predators, but that they defy our normal categorical sorting mechanisms by blurring the lines between categories of things. So a spider a hundred times bigger than it should be, a snake with wings, a lion that can talk. Uh, And by the way they defy intuitive sorting, these creatures resist easy cognitive understanding and thus they cause discomfort and fear. Like a creature that has aspects of biological threats like predatory or venomous forms and also simultaneously messes with our cognitive defenses by violating category coherence, that's sort of the ultimate threat, right? Mm-hmm. It it beats your greatest defense and it is the most threatening kind of thing. Thus, the monster slayer has to overcome more than the normal warrior. They have to face primordial fears and square off against an enemy that normally makes us feel weak and helpless and afraid at the deepest level. And in this respect, you can you can sort of look at, at any myth as, uh, as simply a, a situation where, you know, you sit around the fire and one guy's like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of afraid of the darkness. It seems, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, seems kind of intense. I mean, who knows what's out there and it's what it, all that's out there. It might try and eat me and one day I'm going to die anyway. And then the uh, the other soldier sitting around the, the fire says, well, uh, let me tell you a story because this story has a hero in it. And all that stuff that you're afraid of, he just cuts its head off. It's a, it's that simple. And so here is a hero that you can uh, you can you can ruminate on. Do you think that inherently the monster slayer story is more often empowering to the audience, to the person listening, like you can be like that hero? Or is it more often uh, commanding kind of submission and obedience, like look at what our heroes are like, you must bow down before them? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Well, that it could be like chill out. We have – there's a hero out there doing this for you. Yeah. Or chill out like the, the power behind the, behind the hero, the god or the gods or the goddess. The, if you're behind that god, then hey, that god's got a hero. You don't have to worry about it. But then in later – certainly more, more modern understanding is like, yeah, I'm kind of like Blade, right? <laughs> I can – you know, like at least on some level, like we're – 
we're supposed to, uh, I mean, we're rooting for the hero. We're rooting for Blade or Dutch or whoever. Uh, and, and we are kind of living the story through them. And yeah, you kind of leave those, those pictures, those stories feeling, I can slay the monsters in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bloodsuckers in my life, uh, I think they might have a stake coming. Quick note, I'm not encouraging anyone to stake anybody. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, we're not trying to create Martins out there. No. <laughs> or wait, no, not Martins. What is, it's Martin's uncle or whatever, right? Are you talking about the Romero film? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen that. Well, don't, don't be like anybody in that movie. Just don't, <laughs> just don't imitate any part of it. <laughs> All right, so in order to overcome the monster, though, uh, the hero is probably going to need a certain amount of courage. Uh, I mean, arguably, if you're getting into like, are they? Do they have any fear to begin with? If they if they have any amount of fear, they're going to have to summon courage, or they're going to have to exhibit courage that is beyond that which the normal person would seem to have, right? Because if you're Beowulf, otherwise, why would you go into the dark? Why would you dive down into the deep and find the lair? Well, so there there are a couple of different ways you can go in to face the monster, right? I guess one would be to to have courage to overcome your fear because I guess that's sort of the definition of courage, right? Courage is a cognitive overriding of anxiety that prevents the physiological fear response or, or overcomes the physiological fear response and prevents you from running away. It makes you, you know, you've got control and you make yourself face the fear-inducing thing. Like the, I think a great example of this is in Aliens. Yeah. Where Ripley, uh, well, she certainly she's returning to the world of the xenomorph in the first half, but in the later half of the film, she is going back in to save Newt. She no. is descending into the monster's world and facing something that it has been well established she is terrified of. That is That is a great example. And in fact, I will say, while I have mixed feelings about a lot of monster slayers, you know, I'm like, eh, I don't know if I like Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Maybe I think Grindel, Grind- <laughs> maybe Grindel had a point. Ripley, I think, is a is a truly holy monster slayer. I am 100% behind Ripley in her slaying quest. Right. I mean, that's a really a straight up Beowulf story because she also ends up essentially fighting Grindel's mother. Yes. Uh, in Aliens. Yeah. But if it were Terminator versus Alien... Then, well, that that would be the other half, right? right? That would be the the hero that doesn't feel fear to begin with. And sometimes you don't know. I mean, sometimes you kind of feel that way. Is that what Beowulf's like? Is that what Hercules are like? Are these heroes supposed to be people who just are incapable of feeling afraid in the face of this monster? Yeah. Uh, you, you do think, you know, you wonder if, is Marduk, is Marduk courageous or is he just fearless? I wonder if Marduk is actually courageous because Marduk makes a bargain, right? Yeah. He's like, look, if I'm going to put this all on the line and risk it, you at least got to make me king of the gods. Or he's just following operating procedure, you know? Yeah, maybe. Or, yeah, maybe he's a robot. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so uh, to think about this, you can think about it in a couple of ways in the brain. So, like, uh, I want to start off by mentioning the amygdala, the, you know, the little almond-shaped subcortical brain network, the amygdala, sometimes referred to, uh, I think, not quite accurately as the brain's fear center or something like that. As usual with these kinds of appellations, that's a bit of an oversimplification. The, the brain's fear response is complex and it involves multiple brain regions, but there are multiple lines of evidence that indicate that the amygdala does appear to play some important role in 
in fear. It's some, it does something important in generating the physiological fear response in the body. Uh, for example, brain imaging studies show that uh, fear-inducing images like pictures of animals like spiders and snakes trigger activation in the amygdala, but that the brain can also recruit other regions to inhibit amygdala response, which seems to be correlated with resistance to the fear response. Uh, both animals and people with damaged amygdalas seem to show a diminished sense of the fear response. So like one example is the classic case of uh, patient SM, who I think we've talked about on I the show before. So, yes. Um, a famous case of a woman who experienced bilateral amygdala damage during childhood and she shows very little if any fear response in situations like haunted houses and stuff and, and in response to scary movies. She, she just lacks a fear response that is very common among pretty much everybody else uh, and this seems to have something to do with the damage to her amygdala. Uh, again, this does not necessarily mean that fear is, quote, in the amygdala but it does indicate that the amygdala plays this important role in generating the threat avoidance behavior we associate with fear. So, I mean, I wonder if you saw somebody who inspired you to tell a story of somebody like Hercules or Beowulf who was just fearless, not courageous, but fearless. Is this – I wonder, is this inspired by the idea of somebody with a damaged amygdala, you know, people hmm. who just don't even flinch in the face of something scary? I mean, well, we do have the, uh, you know, additional information about Hercules being driven mad uh, and slaying his children. Oh, yeah. So uh, I don't know. That doesn't – that perhaps speaks to uh, the possibility of additional uh, neurological damage. Yeah. Uh, oh, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not suggesting that Hercules is based on a historical figure or mm -hmm. something like that. But I mean, with all these kinds of stories, you wonder if somebody saw something that inspired the story, or is it just pure creative imagination? It could be either one. Or yeah. Some, you know, some or you see something, you or you're looking at somebody being courageous. And if all you see is the courageous act, you could well interpret it as fearlessness. Like, look at that guy. He's never afraid in his life. You, you're just not privy to the part where after he defeats the enemy, he goes back and like vomits and weeps in his tent <laughs> because he's just been through this horrific experience. I mean, uh, you know, we often talk about the monster slaying as like this, this, this rite of passage for the hero, mm -hmm. you know, that it makes them. Um, and, it, and this, of course, reminds me of the, you know, the, the line, that which does not kill you almost kills you <laughs> and is therefore inherently traumatic. Uh-huh. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, that's the other model. Maybe it is that somebody saw somebody who was just being courageous and facing their fears and they did it so well that people saw that and interpreted it as them being fearless. Like mm -hmm. they couldn't even see through to what the person was feeling. Um, and so, you know, I wonder like what's going on in the brain with courage. There have actually been studies on this. Uh, there was one I was looking at by uh, Uri Neely, Hagar Goldberg, Abraham Wiseman, and Yadin Dudai in Neuron in 2010 called Fear Thou Not, Activity of Frontal and Temporal Circuits in Moments of Real-Life Courage. So this is a snake on a trolley experiment. You know, you got to love a good snake on a trolley experiment. You, the trolley operator is the subject of the experiment. They're sitting down in an fMRI. So this is an fMRI study, you know, with all the caveats we know about some of these neuroimaging studies. Uh, assuming that their results are, are, are valid and useful here, the subject's goal is, the subject's goal is to lay in the fMRI, get the brain imaged while they are attempting to move a trolley with a snake on it as close as possible 
possible to their head. So it's on a track and they can control it and they're trying to get the snake close to them. And the researchers found that courage, overcoming fear and moving the snake closer to the head, was associated with activity in the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex or the SGACC and also in the right temporal pole. And the authors write, quote, further activity in the SGACC was positively correlated with the level of fear upon choosing to overcome fear, but not upon succumbing to it. So like you've got a lot of fear and you overcome it. You say like, I'm really afraid. I'm terrified of snakes, but I'm going to keep moving the snake closer to my head. That was positively correlated with more activity in this region, the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex. And so they finally say that the courage behavior seems to attenuate activity in the amygdala and other regions associated with fear response, and it inhibits the autonomic physiological fear response in uh, that we would normally have in response to fear-inducing stimuli, promoting the courage behavior. It's like when you experience courage, that is a process in the brain and it's one part of the brain apparently inhibiting what would normally be going on in another part of the brain saying, shut that down, we're going to do it anyway. Now, another illuminating study, uh, this, this is one that, uh, that, that you found. Uh, this one comes uh, from the Proceedings of uh, the National Academy of Sciences uh, from 2010. It's by Mobs et al. titled uh, Neural Activity Associated with Monitoring the Oscillating Threat Value of a Tarantula. Okay, so we've got another per- perhaps a phylogenetic threat here. Right. And phylogenetic threats, these are, of course, threats that are hardwired into us via evolution like we've been discussing, discussing especially the fear of spiders and snakes. Assuming that's correct. Right. So if I'm reading the study correctly, uh, what the 2010 study is saying is that in their experiment, moving the object of fear, a tarantula, close to the subject, produced a cascade of fear responses in the brain, including activity in the amygdala, quote, associated with under uh, prediction of the tarantula's threat value. Um, uh, and by the way, one of the, the authors in the study, uh, the, the main author here, Dean Mobbs, assistant professor of cognitive neuroscience at Caltech, he has a 2018 paper titled How Cognitive and Reactive Fear Circuits Optimize Escape Decisions in Humans. And it uh, drives home how the brain responds to fear via or seems to respond to fear via two distinct fear circuits uh, studied in, the, uh, in this study via fMRI and a virtual predator video game. Hmm. No connection to Dutch. Right. Uh, this would be like a, a phylogenetic predator. Right. <laughs> so uh, this is what, what uh, he lays out. We have the cognitive fear circuit. Uh, this is distant threats, front brain regions, asserting risk and making decisions. This is a, a conscious exercise. And then there's the reactive fear circuit. This is uh, related to central brain structures. This is fight, flight, or freeze. This is a subconscious respa- re- response. Okay. So in the words of mobs, Quote, you don't think your way out of a tiger attack, all right? So, yeah, if you stop to think when a tiger is assaulting you, you're dead. Uh, You react instead via the reactive fear circuit, which is subconscious and unthinking. Yeah, I mean, that's why fear is often characterized as like a a, a sort of involuntary physiological body response, not just like the thought, I am afraid. Yeah, like uh, this, I couldn't help but think about this in terms of, of flying. We one mm-hmm. of our other episodes this month, we talked a little bit about the fear of flying, and there is a, a distinct difference between the fear one uh, will have on the plane mm-hmm. and the fear one has um, the day before the flight, They're or even different, the day yeah. before the day before the flight. Yeah. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I wonder to what extent we might apply this model to our, our monster slaying heroes, men or, or mostly men of action and reaction. So sometimes they plan, uh, certainly, but, but, the, but the planning is, again, oftentimes the work of a god or a goddess. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I can't imagine, I can't help but imagine what Julian Jaynes uh, would, have, uh, would have said about all this, the kind of fun he would have, would have had with this. I, I was looking around. I'm not sure that he ever really tackled monsters and monster slaying specifically. Uh, uh, but he was very interested in the the role between, of course, heroes and gods. Well, yeah, certainly. I mean, what we're saying here, if we're assuming that Mobs is correct about this, that you've got the cognitive fear circuit and the reactive fear circuit, I'm sure Jaynes would have imagined that as like, you know, the automatic unconscious brain circuit and then the, like the god fear circuit. Yeah. Like uh, to, to give you an idea, everyone an idea of like what he might have, have said about this kind of thing, uh, he did touch on fear and terror in his 1977 essay, Remembrance of Things Far Past. <laughs> he said, quote, fear and terror once easily dissipated stretch out into anxiety that can last a lifetime and all because men can now automatically and even against their wishes reconstruct and hold uh, as if present in this new spatialized time, the unalterable experience of the past and its possibility in the future. Now, of course, that's Jane's playing with the bicameral model. Obviously, mm-hmm. you don't need to accept the bicameral model to see that there's something interesting going on with humans. I, You know, you don't get the sense that most animals experience anxiety in quite the same way humans do. I mean, you can't know for sure, but you don't get the sense that they are like cognitively working over their fear scenarios the way we do. Right. I mean, I I guess there's something to be said for certainly cases of, say, zoocosis, where an animal is is behaving abnormally because it is in captivity, where it's kind of undergoing a continuous challenge to its mental stability, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's safe to say that that animals process things these things differently. There's definitely a human dimension to the way we deal with threats and the way we respond mentally to them. And it's interesting the way uh, so many of these stories we've talked about show different people reacting to the threat in different ways, like the story of St. George and the dragon. Mm-hmm. First, the villagers go out to fight the dragon, but then they can't overcome their fear and they're forced to run away. You know, they think they can fight it, but then their fear gets the better of them. We see who they really are and they're, they're driven back. But St. George has the courage and he has the, you know, he has Christ on his side. A similar thing, I think, with Marduk, right? You know, mm-hmm. the other gods were too afraid to to fight Tiamat, but Marduk overcame his fear. Yeah, yeah, and to, to come back to to Mob's um, uh, division of the the two responses, I can't help but wonder if our monster slaying heroes are models of our ideal reactive fear network self. Hmm. So as we engage with our cognitive fear network to anticipate threats in the natural world, we ruminate on the model and symbol of these embodiments of just like pure ideal subconscious reaction. You know, pure, just pure monster—not only monster slayers but monster destroyers. Yeah. 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 Like, have you ever played with that scenario? Um, you know, what would I do if there was like somebody attacking me or something like that? You yeah. know, you like to imagine like, oh, I'd do this and that, you know, I'd I'd be strong and I'd be smart and I'd be brave. But then like when that really happens to people, you know, they cower in fear. Yeah. And like you, it, it's a thing that you can't even know what you would do. You can hope you would be one way, but you can't know until it happens because these involuntary processes take over. So yeah, so you're saying like that we're trying to imagine 
the way we hope we would be when those uh, automatic processes take over and just guide your action without you thinking about it. Yeah. And, and maybe to a certain extent, we, we're even actively saying, let me be Beowulf when the time comes. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And, and I, I can't help but wonder if having fictional models makes it more likely. Yeah. That's possible. I don't know. Let me be the Hulk when the time comes, you know? Yeah. Like if you've, if you've had a model that you can picture in your mind, does it make it more likely that you will actually act that way? Hmm. I don't know. But it's uh, – yeah, that's interesting food for thought. Uh, either way, it, there's, there, there is truth to the matter that, that uh, when, when the, the terror comes, when the monster comes, we don't ne- – unless we've rehearsed for it, like actively, not mentally, but like physically, mm-hmm. you know, we, we probably don't have a, a clear idea of how we will respond. You know, we have our, our, our intentions and our hopes regarding our response, but maybe we haven't actually been tested yet. Uh, I'm reminded of a quote from Hunter S. Thompson, uh, specifically the lyrics he wrote for a Warren Zevon song of, this, of the same name, where he said, quote, you're a whole different person when you're scared. That's which, true, uh, yeah. True. And so you're saying you, you want to know what that person's going to be like. Maybe they can be like Hercules. Exactly, yeah. That's why, yeah, I'm going to picture Hercules in my mind and hopefully maybe that is what the gods will make of me when the time comes. So I didn't find a study like this, but I would be kind of surprised if there isn't one somewhere out there, a study of like uh, does thinking about monster slayers or heroes of any kind make you more courageous? Do do the snake trolley test again, but just like see if there's any difference when you like prime people beforehand with a story of a monster slayer or something. Group B – Got to watch season two of Buffy. Yeah, uh, prior to uh, handling the snake trolley. Uh huh. Yeah, maybe so. So you're a season two guy, huh? Well, I th- I mean, season one is necessary. I love the master, um, mm-hmm. but uh, even as I was watching it, people were like, "You just got to press on through season one and get to season two, and then uh, yeah, from from there on, from from there on, it's it's gravy." I'd go season three. Yeah, yeah, that's where it really like. That's the, that's the mayor season. Oh, the mayor is good. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the mayor. Yeah, I need to rewatch some of them. I'm not going to say all of them, but I do. I should go back and rewatch some of them. There are some great episodes in there. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Uh, the monster slayer. Monsters and the, the fabulous slayers who slay them. Uh, this was a fun one to put together. Obviously, we couldn't look at every amazing monster slaying myth or legend or modern interpretation out there. There's just so much good stuff. Hey, send us uh, send us your favorite monster slayer stories. I want to hear more of those, uh, especially the ones you hear less often, especially ones with great female monster slayers. I want to know more of those stories. Oh, for sure. I should also point out that there are some, there are some really good ones that I ran across in. Um, Native American traditions that oh, we didn't yeah. have time to include here. But uh, yeah, maybe that's something we can do again in the future if everyone really digs a good monster slayer tale. Yeah, there there's some good ones there. All right. In the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes uh, as well as a, just a lot of extra monster content, a whole bunch of monster blogs that I wrote over the years, uh, some monster science videos, links out to our social media accounts like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, as well as a link for our store. Uh, go check that out. A great way to support the show is to uh, buy some of that merchandise. We have one related to a recent, recent episode on the Basilisk. Uh, you can check that out. And if you want to support the show in a way that doesn't cost you any money, just rate and review us. We're 
wherever you have the power to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you'd like to get in touch with us directly, let us know feedback on this episode or any other to uh, suggest a topic for the future. Let us know about your favorite monster slayer. uh, Or uh, just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, where you listen from. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 